comes to us from the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 16. We will begin our reading at verse 21 of that chapter and then read through the end. First Kings 16, beginning at verse 21. What we hear now is God's word. Then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Ganat, to make him king, and half followed Omri. But the people who followed Omri overcame the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ganath. So Tibni died, and Omri became king. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri began to reign over Israel, and he reigned for 12 years. Six years he reigned in Tirzah. He bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver, and he fortified the hill and called the name of the city that he built Samaria, after the name of Shemer, the owner of the hill. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did more evil than all who were before him. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Omri that he did, and the might that he showed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab his son reigned in his place. In the 38th year of Asa king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, he took his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Aviram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Here we end the reading of God's holy word. Well, as I mentioned this morning, we are starting a new series of sermons tonight, a series which I am very uh, excited about. I've been working on this for a number of weeks now. Uh, I'm excited about it for a couple reasons. Uh, one is we're going to be looking at a portion of the Bible we probably don't turn to all that often. How many times for our devotions do we turn to 1 Kings? Uh, do we look to the monarchy period of Judah and Israel? Uh, 
Uh, but it's a beautiful part of the Scriptures. It's a part about the prophet Elijah. Now, we're not going to get to Elijah tonight. He shows up in chapter 17. But tonight sets the historical and theological context of what was going on when Elijah came on the scene. And if there was a theme that I, was going to, that I would give to this section of God's Word, this, uh, this Elijah cycle, as it's often called, I would give it the theme something along the lines that the Word of the Lord is true. God is faithful to His Word. We will hear that again and again in this section of Scripture. According to the Word of the Lord, things happen. That's, that's the theme we're going to see, that God's Word was to, was to warn His people back then. It's to warn us today, to, to remember that God is faithful both to His promises and to His warnings and His curses. We look tonight at, at 1 Kings chapter 16, and we see it is an age of apostasy in Israel. Verse 21. Then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, son of Ganath, to make him king, and half followed Omri. We're going to talk about Omri, who is the sixth king of Israel after the divided monarchy. Remember, kids, before uh, Israel and Judah were one people, one nation. And then after Solomon, uh, there is a group that, that follows Rehoboam and retains Jerusalem as the capital of Judah. There's that, that group that follows Rehoboam and remains Judah. There are the ten tribes that are now called Israel, and they follow Jeroboam. So two guys with very similar names, Rehoboam, who stays with Judah in Jerusalem, and Jeroboam, who leads the Israelites. Well, we're, look, we're looking at the line of Israel, and particularly uh, this line of the kings that leads up to Omri. The king previous to Omri, we didn't read that part of the text, maybe you can read that earlier, or another time, but earlier in this text, the previous king, Zimri, killed himself. And so that's why now Israel is in need of a new king. Zimri is gone, and the people are divided. Some want to follow Tibni, and some want to follow Omri. Now, Omri was the captain of the army. Omri had the military might behind his push to be king. And so we read in verse 22, the people who followed Omri overcame the people who followed Tibni. No surprise. Omri had the army, and so they overcome the others. In fact, the text is almost humorous how it says this. So Tibni died, and Omri became king. Tibni, Tibni did not die by natural forces. He did not succumb to old age. Uh, he was taken out by Omri and his forces. We have this, this progressive decline now as Omri becomes king. Verse 24, he bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer for two talents of silver 
and he fortified the hill and called the name of, the, of, the, of that city, he built Samaria after the name of Shemer, the owner of the hill. So he's going to found this city, Samaria. He builds Samaria, but Samaria is not just any city. Samaria will be the capital now of the northern kingdom. Judah retained Jerusalem as its capital. Samaria becomes the capital of Israel, the northern kingdom. A rival city to Jerusalem in Judah. Omri rejects God's chosen city, where God said, here my name will dwell in Jerusalem. Omri rejects God's chosen city and sets up his own. He sets up Samaria. What happens? Verse 25. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. He walked in the way of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And that phrase finds itself a number of places in the record of the kings. To walk in the ways of evil, King Jeroboam, who caused the people to sin. What was that sin that Jeroboam brought to the people? For that, we have to turn back just a couple chapters to 1 Kings chapter 12. Remember, this is when the kingdom is being divided. Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And Rehoboam has the capital in Jerusalem. Jeroboam is now in Israel. And he's afraid that if people return to Jerusalem, they will also return their allegiance to Judah, not to him in Israel. And so we read in chapter 12, verse 25, Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem. Then the heart of this people will return again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. Rather than going to Jerusalem, where God said, here my name will dwell, here you will come to worship. He sets up these two rival places of worship, in Bethel and in Dan. He sets up images for the people of God to worship. This was the sin. This was the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. And we see from the time of Jeroboam to the time of Omri, this continued downward spiral and spiritual decline. We go on and we hear about this man, 
Ahab. Omri dies, Ahab becomes king and continues the decline. Look at verse 30. And Ahab, son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, he took his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbanel, king of the Sidonians. Ahab marries Jezebel. We'll talk more about here as her as this series unfolds. But notice here, Ahab does not go to the covenant people to find a wife. Ahab goes to the daughter of the king of the Sidonians, the nations, out near Phoenicia. He goes outside the covenant line and intermarries with these pagans. We read, he served Baal and worshipped him. Beyond that, verse 32, he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. He is now going beyond the sin of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. He introduces false worship, the worship of Baal, in his capital city. Remember when when Jeroboam set up those, those images at Dan and Bethel, he said to the Israelites, Behold, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. It was an image of the one true God, a violation of the second commandment. Now, We have Ahab not making images of the true God, but setting up an altar to Baal, a false God, a violation of the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the decadence going on. That's the apostasy going on. In the capital city, a temple to a pagan god. The ongoing decline. The people moving away from their distinct calling to be God's chosen people. Now, now, they begin to look just like the nations. We have this this interesting, almost parenthetical statement here. Uh, Verse 33, Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who went before him. And then verse 34, In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of Aviram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub. In the days that Ahab reigned, Hiel builds Jericho. Almost seems like an uninteresting historical tidbit for us. But the fact that this was undertaken shows the great depth of their depravity. This happens under Ahab's reign. It's being done by Hiel, but he certainly has to have the blessing of Ahab to do a building project like this. What was the significance to rebuild Jericho? Remember, kids, when when the Israelites came into Canaan, Jericho 
was that first city they encountered. And it was their first victory in the promised land. How did that victory come about? Did that victory happen because Israel had such great military might that they were able to overtake the city of Jericho? You remember, that wasn't it. All Israel did was to walk around the city. They walked around and they walked around, and God, by His power, brought the walls of Jericho down. It was not by human might, but it was by the power of God that the walls fell down, and they were not to be rebuilt. Jericho would be a monument for them. The fallen walls would be a reminder to them that entrance into the promised land is a gift of God's grace, not the work of human hands. And those walls were left in rubble, and that gate was left unbuilt as a monument, as a reminder that it is by grace and not by works that we enter the promised land. No walls, no gates for Jericho. And now, now in the days of Ahab, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He will put up the walls. He will set the gate. This is no mere building project. This is a theological statement being played out for everyone to see. We don't want the reminder that entrance into the promised land comes by God's grace. We don't need God to do it for us. We will take away this reminder and think that it is simply the work of our own hands that has brought us here. They would want to deliberately forget what this monument stood for. We're familiar with that. We've seen that going on today. Incidents in the past which have monuments to them, the monuments are being taken down that we might forget what happened. That's what's going on here. The fallen walls were a monument, a monument to the grace of God that brought them in. And their restoration of the walls and their setting of the gates was to say, we don't need God. We will do it all on our own, removing the reminder of what God had done for him. And in the days of Ahab, he allows this building project to begin and that, 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 that battle between grace and works continues to go on, played out in their very eyes as the reminder of the grace of God swept away and these walls, the work of man's hands, set up. We read, He laid its foundation at the cost of Aviram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub. There are those who suggest that this is a reference uh, to human sacrifice. 
that when he set the walls, he sacrificed his son Aviram. When he set the gates at the end, he sacrificed his son Seguv. I do not believe that is what's going on here. This is not a reference to human sacrifice. It is a reference back to a prophecy that was given 600 years earlier. Back when Jericho originally fell, back in Joshua chapter 6, we read this in verse 26. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city Jericho. Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation. At the cost of his youngest son, shall he set up its gates. It was not a human sacrifice on the part of the builder. It was God executing his word. It was God bringing forth the curse that he had warned about. Some 600 years later, the word of God remains true. And God fulfills the warning that he had said, if you rebuild, it'll be at the cost of your firstborn, it'll be at the cost of your youngest son. When you forget that entrance into God's promised land is by grace and not by works, people die. The sons are killed by God in fulfillment of his word of warning. And, and, it is not just these two sons the firstborn, and the youngest. This this prophecy back in Joshua is written as what we call a Hebrew merism. And we talked about that in our psalm series, how the psalms often use a merism. A merism is using two polar opposites, but referring to everything between them. For example, in Psalm 139, uh, the psalmist says, where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee from you? If I go to heaven, you are there. If I go to Sheol, you are there. The psalm means, and everywhere in between. God, you're everywhere. If I rise at the dawn or go down to the dusk, and God, you are there at all the time in between. So when this merism says that at his firstborn he laid the foundations of the walls and at his youngest the the gates were set in place, it means every son, everyone in between. God brought curse upon this family. His attempt to build a legacy for himself ended up losing himself and his family. We need to remember entrance into God's favor, entrance into the promised land is a work of God's grace. His work, not the work of our hands. And when we forget that, we endanger our own family. Our text finishes with these few words. This happened according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, son of Nun. This happened according to the word of the Lord given 600 years earlier. 
the times in the Bible are hard for us to get our minds around. 600 years. Just in our own history, that's before the United States began. That's before Columbus discovered America. 600 years! And that word of the Lord now comes to pass. The curse on those who would forget that God's word endures forever. God will still be faithful to his word of warning. He will fulfill the curses he has warned against his people, and he is faithful to his word of blessing. That while, while those walls remain down, it was a constant reminder that entrance into God's favor is by grace and not the work of our hands. It is that same word that comes to us tonight. And how easy it is for us to forget. How easy it is for us to, to forget that our entrance into God's favor was not by something we had done. Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. No, our entrance into God's favor was holy and completely because of His grace. His grace and mercy shown us in His Son, Jesus Christ. And we must remember that and be reminded of that and never tear down any monument that reminds us of that glorious truth. We must never try to rebuild the walls or set the gates. We must never forget the, 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 the simple truth of the gospel that we were those who were dead in transgressions and sins, and God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to make us alive. When we forget that, when we, when we fail to pass that truth onto our children, we put their own lives, their eternal life, in jeopardy. The word of warning, the word of curse, but also the word of promise. The word of promise that it is by grace that we are brought in. It is by the glorious grace of God, not the works of our hands, that the walls would fall in Jericho, that the people would be ushered into the promised land. That same truth is our truth. For everyone who embraces Jesus Christ, for everyone who refuses to build the walls of Jericho, we're reminded again of God's mercy of his grace, of his kindness to us, his people. A word written not 600 years ago, but thousands of years ago, but a word that is still as true today as it was then. The word of God remains. According to God's word, these things took place. We will see that theme throughout our study of the Elijah cycle. The word of God, the word of God, is faithful, is true, is as much for us as it was for them. Let's join together in prayer. Lord our God, we praise you that you have left us a faithful record of your way with your people. You have given us your holy word. As we enter into our study, Lord God, of this portion of your word, the portion uh, that describes the work of your prophet Elijah, may we be encouraged, may we be strengthened to know that your word remains true even today. You continue to 
save us by grace through faith, not by the works of our hands. Lord God, your promises are true and eternal, and your call to faithful living also true and eternal. Make us good students of your word, O God, that we might be strengthened in our faith, encouraged by that word, and following in a way that is pleasing to you. Hear our prayer, O God, for Jesus' sake. Amen.